Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I look away, then again, I let my gaze rest on her. Pretense, false life, it's not my thing. She deserves to know. Everyone deserves to know. Even Papa in his grave. This program features the work of 2021 writer Tachuku Okafor. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator E.J. Ko. Welcome, Tochiku. Thank you for joining, and I can't wait to learn more about you and your work. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw project? My Jack Straw project is the story about a young man who is gay in Nigeria, and it's set against the backdrop of when the anti-gay bill law was passed in Nigeria. And so the story sort of looks back at his life, the way he tries to reconcile his sexuality and religion, mental health, and the story sort of looks at all these themes through this protagonist. You already talked a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear more on the oppression faced by the LGBTQ plus community in Nigeria and how that has been a big part of your work. So the anti-gay bill law was passed by the former president of Nigeria in 2014. And up until then, growing up in Nigeria, I was sort of disappointed in the political situation in Nigeria and how there is poor infrastructure and how you know people have to navigate through different forms of oppression each day. And so when the law was passed, I felt no one should be judged for who they are. No one should be oppressed for who they are. People should be allowed to live and live freely without judgment. And so when that law was passed, I felt it was kind of like taking a sort of moral judgment on people. And the law was unjust or is unjust because it's it's still a thing in the country. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about these marginalized people who every day have to navigate a very stifling space where they are not allowed to breathe. And when I say breathe, they are not allowed to express themselves freely as humans because human beings are sexual beings. And... Ever since then, I, I've always thought of myself as just writing stories, but until my, until my therapist pointed out to me that it's a form of activism, and although I, I don't see myself as an activist, I think it comes with a great deal of work, but I wanted to reflect the lives of LGBTQ plus people in my work and you know give them a voice because I think of them especially for LGBTQ plus people living in Nigeria, I see them as people who are too busy trying to save themselves that they don't have time to 
tell their own stories? I'm thinking about faith and especially with Christianity and what it means here in the States, right? And how that aligns with or doesn't align with or how the faith is handled in a different part of the world. In, um, for my example, it would be Catholicism in Korea. And that's very different from the way we see and approach Catholicism or even the themes or the images that come to mind in the States. It's a sort of different culture, different location, and it's a country that has its own history with this, right? I mean, it's the same faith, but it's not global in the sense that I first thought it would be before doing the research. I mean, how has that been for you? I mean, do you see those things, the way faith is handled in and out of different parts of the world? I mean, I grew up Catholic in Nigeria. And We're just two writers who grew up Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in Nigeria, you you are not supposed to ask questions. But if you asked questions, you had to, your questions had to be kind. You are not supposed to ask questions to challenge the faith. Because if you did, you would be seen as abnormal. Although that's changed when I grew older, I, I mean, I began to ask questions about the faith. And when I moved to the U.S., I didn't see much of a difference in the way people treated the faith. Like, I don't see much of a difference in the sense of how the faith relates, especially the Catholic faith, because that's what I know fairly well how the Catholic faith relates with things going on in the world. I feel the faith sort of like shields and creates its kind of bubble. It refuses to engage. And even when it does, it does it in a sort of judgmental, condescending way, which I still bristle against. But I guess all I'm trying to say is I just wish for a world where especially the Catholic faith, is more open to conversations, is more open to change. And because, I mean, change is dynamic. Things change every day. The weather is not the same every day. <laughs> the temperatures are not the same. Today is overcast. Tomorrow it's sunny. And so I, I wish the, the faith was more dynamic, was more flexible, willing to engage with the goings-on of the world. Mm. I mean, a very good example is, like, I have a very good friend and <laughs> who is back in Nigeria, and each time I tell him, he's ex always excited to hear about what I'm writing, and I don't give him the full details, so I tell him things like, oh, I'm working about a story about mental health and sexuality, and he's always saying things like, why am I always trying to push an agenda? <laughs> why am I always trying to push the LGBTQ agenda? And, <laughs> and I'm saying it's not an agenda. It's, it's, I'm writing about the lives of people. I'm, as a writer, I'm only a vessel. But sometimes I'm allowed to be empathetic. And I hope when people read my work, they would see that I'm trying to deconstruct faith. I'm trying to permeate that space where faith 
thinks it's impermeable and sort of open it up to possibilities. Can I ask you about what your day job is and and how that's been and how that might come into your writing or maybe not? Do you keep that very separate? I mean, I have I have an engineering background, so I mean, how how has engineering sort of come into your writing? Maybe it's made certain things or details a bit more keen or uh, is there any relationship with engineering and your writing? I wish there was one. Most people when I tell them and I'm an engineer and a writer. The first thing they ask me is, do you write science fiction? And I'm oh. like, no, <laughs> no, I don't write science fiction. <laughs> but it's I, I wish there was some sort of connection and I'm I'm still yet to make if there is any connection between my engineering and art. But I think one connection I could now I think of it is structure. Because I think Everything in engineering is about structure and structure gives meaning to everything. And so I apply the nuances of structure to my writing, which is something I've learned from my engineering career. My father was a software engineer and my partner now is a mechanical engineer. He's a biomedical mechanical engineer and There are a lot of engineers in my family, and I think they look at me and say, a writer, how did did we, how did a family of engineers and, you know, everyone around me tends to have some sort of engineering background. And what I found is I, I love our conversations anyway, because it feels very much like engineering is a very creative and I think there's an assumption that it's not, that it only uses a, a one side or certain hemisphere of your brain. And I just, um, you know, even my father and my partner both say that. And I go, that's just not true when I see you work. It, you have to be intensely creative to find the solutions that you do find. And that sort of ability to guide you forward, to guide yourself toward a solution toward a way out, like you said, when it comes to structuring, I I imagine can be so powerful as when it comes to writing. Yeah, when I think of it now, I think engineering is also creativity because during my undergrad days, I had to produce like technical drawings, write lab reports. I mean, writing also finds its way into engineering as well because, I mean, even though the reports use technical jargon and it has to be more brief and concise and, you know, tight and compressed. I think creative writing skills also come to play in my engineering career. Although I don't know if I should get offended when people ask me, so what's it going to be? Am I going to give up my engineering career for my writing career or... And I'm, I'm always pushing back and I'm always asking them, why can't it be both? Why can't I do both and enjoy doing both? Why do I have to give up one for the other? Mm. 
Now we'll hear a selection from Tuchuku's live reading. America, America. The night before I leave Onicha for Lagos, I tell Mama that I now live with a man, full time, as a married couple, as man and man. We sit on the faded red and black checkered cushion in the spacious parlor that is home to chopping crickets at night and geckos and spiders by daytime. With her face as gloomy as a faithful at a funeral mass, Mama wraps her arms around her, pressing her fists into her sides, like she did when the news of Papa's death swept in through our front door. A man, you, live with a man. It's a guinea. Our words emerge one after the other, like a four-year-old counting numbers. Perhaps I should also tell her that she owes me a certain kind of gratitude for coming out the way I just did, boldly, without mincing my words, without having to send revelatory letters from across the Nigerian border. Doesn't she know that a son could spend 14 years in prison for this? I may never get to see the four walls of a Nigerian prison or even get close to smelling the foul stench of that sort of place. What if I am stoned to death or burned at a stake for committing the crime of loving a man? But Mama shifts in her seat, as if shifting will make what I had said settle well in her stomach. She kisses her teeth and then bites her lip. Her face loses its glow, sigh by sigh, breath by breath, to the moonlit room. Somehow, I can feel a shock. Even the tremor in her last words at least pain. The pain of robbed grandmotherhood. I love him, Mama. Oh, I really do. I only wish I had told you this earlier when Papa was still with us. A long silence falls between us. I watch her eyes roll deep into their sockets, deep into thoughts. They seem to peer into blank nothingness, drooping upon the formless shadows hanging on the walls. Our breath grow louder, louder than the insects scraping about us. I look away, then again, I let my gaze rest on her. Pretense, false life, it's not my thing. She deserves to know. Everyone deserves to know. Even Papa in his grave. Body and I plan to adopt a child. But given the Nigerian condition, it won't be possible. So we will be moving to America next month. There will still be grandchildren, you know. You can always visit us in America. America. Mama, what about America? It is America. Mama, it is America. Yes, America. You have been infected with your disease. Mwam, if you go they give you not only their education, but also their disease. Mama, I'm not infected with any disease. I also want to tell her that I never had a thing for girls. My eyes and heart 
have always been for boys. Look, your father and I made a mistake. You should never have gone to America. Hey, shh, America. India watche bolamo. She sinks to the floor, outstretches her legs, and lets tears stream down her aged cheeks. Sleep refuses to come. Restless, with my thoughts flying off in many tangential directions, I roll from one edge of my bed to the other. I try to summon my father just long enough to hear whatever he has to say. I see only his head, not at once. His hair, gleaming with grey wisp, comes first. Then his brown, half-open eyes and his nose, equiline and pinched by the corners, appears before his quivering lips do. Finally, flesh comes, wrinkled, furrowed, lined, but no ears. My son, why do you bring us shame? Papa's voice is still the way I remember it, gentle, full of emotion, but firm. I love him, Papa. I love body. Papa talks while I talk. You bring me grief, more grief. My body turns in my coffin, in that sad, lonely grave. Where can my spirit wander to for joy? You have brought this illness from America. Now you must return it. Papa, wait. Hold on a second. Let me tell you about body, the love of my life. Return it, I say. Papa disappears feature by feature, exactly the same way he came. I clutch my pillow to my chest, fighting back threatening tears, and shutting my eyes tight, as if shutting them will make the parts of rejection light and bearable. At last, sleep takes me away. In my sleep, I find myself wide awake, and body sprawls naked by my side, crying. I promise him everything will be all right, that I would leave home early before sunrise, and when I get to Lagos, I will take the soonest available flight to America before news circulates. But he does not stop crying. I take him into my arms and love him the only way I know how to. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Levi Fuller and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Coe, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. 
All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.